Good morning. It is an honor to be with you. Thank you to Philip for his kind words about um, preaching during this time and how hard it is. It is a little bit weird to only have a few people in the room or even at the beginning, none at all. So I do miss you uh, very much, but I'm so thankful to everybody who makes this uh, possible. And it is an honor and a privilege to be able to speak into your life uh, during this difficult time. And I hope during this series, you have remembered what the love of God is like, because I know I needed the reminder and we need the chance to remember that Christian love is sacrificial. It's about entering and it's about choosing to be gracious and generous with people at times when they've wronged you even, because that's what God is like. But unfortunately, oftentimes when we think of kings and rulers or politicians, we don't really see the same kind of behavior. So sometimes we can have in our mind that God is the same. For example, there was a ruler named King Nero who was very infamous for persecuting Christians. Um, and he came onto the scene in Rome um, from 54 AD, so shortly after the life of Christ, to 68 AD. So Nero did a lot of, of terrible things. But because he was in charge and he had all of this power, he did some interesting things with that power. One thing that he did, there was a thought during this time, there was an author and historian named uh, Pliny the Elder who said this. He also has a delicious IPA today. Um, Pliny the Elder uh, said, it is believed that donkey milk makes face wrinkles disappear, smooths the skin, and maintains the skin's whiteness. So that was the thought during this time, that bathing in donkey milk would make your skin more beautiful. And I know you don't usually come here for beauty tips, but there's a free one for you. So if you can just get your hands on a little bit of donkey milk, uh, you'll probably be fine. I googled donkey milk baths and I was not able to find any, so you're going to have to figure that out on your own. But because King Nero was so powerful, and the thought was that it made your skin more beautiful, he had 400 donkeys who were milked every day. I assume, I don't know how often you can milk a donkey, but 400 donkeys who would provide enough milk for all the ladies who he was involved with, all his extra wives and the ladies who he has powerful enough to have some semblance of control over. He would have them all bathe in that donkey milk. And I have to say that is an unbelievable amount of power when it's like to be with me, you got to go bathe in donkey milk. But that was how it was for someone like King Nero. And still today, People who are in charge, they often use their power. You know, the old quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when we think, sometimes I think of God, sometimes I think of the same kinds of things we apply to God and what God is like because God has power and glory. And we can start to think that that is who our God is. But that's not what scripture tells us. In the book of Exodus chapter 34 it tells us a quote about God. And this quote comes from a passage that many Jews still today memorize and say throughout the day to remind them of who their God is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. So yeah, there is punishment for sin, and there are times in Scripture where we see that God is angry. But over and over again, this passage is quoted about God, that God is slow to anger, compassionate, and gracious. 
In fact, it's the most quoted book in the Bible by the Bible over and over again. The Bible goes back to this verse and says, this is what our God is like. And this is something that we, I think, can take for granted at times, because if you have never even been to church or been part of um, a Christian group, it's likely that you've heard things like, Jesus is love, or Jesus loves you, or God is love. It's likely that you've heard that idea. But as Exodus is written, this is a brand new concept in human history, that God loves and cares about you? That doesn't even make any sense. The gods and goddesses of that time were very angry, and you would have to be careful. And if you didn't get a good crop one year, then you'd have to think, well, the goddess of this must be upset about that, so I need to sacrifice this certain amount. And so there were things like child sacrifices that would happen in that time and in that culture, because the thought was, obviously this god is upset with me, so what do I have to do? What's the greatest thing that I could possibly imagine giving up to make this god happy to keep this God on my side. And again, we take this somewhat for granted. The idea of God is love. We think of that as a common expression. But this is a completely new idea in human history that Exodus presents, that God is compassionate, gracious, loving, that God is on your side, that God chooses to be with you. This is what our God is like. Those beginning two attributes of God, I think are something that we need to pause and think about for a minute today. First, that God is compassionate. And that word actually comes, the, the Bible uh, was, was written in Hebrew, and the original Hebrew word there, it means the way that a mother loves a child. The compassion that a mother shows to a child, that is what God is like, and that's the way that God feels about you. And then the word gracious is used, and that is an action word. So as Boston would say thousands of years later, it's more than a feeling. Thanks. Thanks, Sonia. Uh, apparently no one else thought that was funny up here. But it talks about how God is... is loving and generous and feels this way about us, but then God does something about that love. It isn't just left in a feeling. God feels this way about us and then does something about it. And that is great news, but the problem is God doesn't go in the same barriers that we do and breaks down walls that we would sometimes consider to be offensive. There's an Old Testament book that is really an, an interesting story, the book of Jonah, where Jonah receives this message that he has to preach this tough word to the Ninevites. And this is a really hard word that he has to preach to the people. And then in Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, it tells us that when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, the king rises from the throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. 
And this is after Jonah has preached what I would argue is the world's worst sermon. And all of a sudden, this city turns around. And this is not good news for Jonah because he's in Nineveh, which um, is the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians had come several hundred years before this. This story is written and taken over Israel. They put them into exile. So imagine thinking about like this nation which had really brutally harmed your nation, suddenly turning all around and receiving the love of God. And for Jonah, this is very upsetting. And you have to know that the Assyrians were especially brutal. In the 1850s, there was an archaeologist group that found a library from Assyria. And written on these clay tablets were things about the ways that the Assyrians had conquered people. I didn't write these on the screen because they're a little bit crazy. Um, one of the kings, Shalmatsar, number two, talks about a conquest, and he says, a pyramid of heads I reared in front of this city, their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. Sennacherib, another king, said, I cut their throats like lambs. I made their entrails run down the earth, which is exactly the kind of image you want on a Sunday morning. And another king, Asperenhal, I didn't put the names up partly because I didn't want you to know how bad I'm butchering them. He said, I flayed him. His skin was upon the city wall. These are kings bragging about their conquests. And it's just all these brutal images. And the Assyrians took pride in how brutal they were. And they conquered the nation of Israel. So you have to make this a little bit personal as Jonah is upset at this group of people. Just think of someone who you, if you're honest, you'd be upset that God loves them. And I know you're like, oh no, I'm just perfect. I never have that feeling about anybody. But let's be real here. There's probably some people who you like legitimately have been wronged by. And if we were to have a conversation, I'd say, yeah, I, I understand why you're upset at that person or at that group or at that group. I get why you're upset. That makes sense. And for Jonah, when he sees this group, and it's just, I think it's supposed to be intentionally a comical, this story about what happens, that the king sends this royal decree out that even the animals are going to fast, which the animals are like, we didn't sign up for that. But that's what the king says. We are going to try our best to turn ourselves around so maybe God might relent. Jonah is the best missionary ever but he's got a terrible attitude about it. In Jonah chapter four, he says this, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? He became angry. That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. At the beginning of the story of Jonah, he runs the farthest direction possible from that place. And the whale fish thing brings him up and vomits him onto dry land. I know sometimes you think the Bible's boring, but there's a whole lot of crazy stuff going on. I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And Jonah needs a timeout, I think, for a little bit. But he's saying, there's this group of people who were mean and terrible and awful to us, and you have extended your love. And it's not just a feeling. You're acting on this love. You are going to allow this people to repent who really, they deserve to pay for their sins. So that's, I think, a really important line in all of Scripture where Jonah says, I knew you were a loving God. This is why I didn't want to come. Again, 
You may be a better person than me, but there's probably somebody who comes to mind who it's hard for you to love. Or if they've wronged you, you don't necessarily think that they deserve God to continue pursuing them. Maybe it's a boss that treated you very unfairly. Maybe it's a family member that you're upset with. Maybe it's a church. People who have wronged you. Things that you would say, yeah, these people, they don't don't deserve to experience the love of God. That's what's so amazing about the love of God. I love how author Anne Lamott says this. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image where it turns out God hates all the same people you do. If you have these certain understandings, these certain feelings of of groups of people or individuals, and God is just on your side in that. And God, just as God teaches Jonah, is calling us back and saying, no, no, this is not what I'm like. The love of God is so much about feeling, so deeply feeling, and then also active, that it's offensive. It breaks down walls. It goes places that you wouldn't expect. I've heard people say that they could think about the grace of God for hundreds of years and never fully grasp it. I think we need to have that perspective that it reaches not just us, which is great news, but it reaches beyond where we might expect. Because the love of God is compassion and feeling but it doesn't just stay there. Jesus shows us what God is like with skin on. And what is Jesus constantly doing? He's making religious people upset. He's going and touching people who you weren't supposed to touch. He's doing important stuff, walking down the road, doing things that he needs to do, and he stops he spends time with kids. He heals the sick. He was accused of being a drunkard because he hangs out at parties. This is what our God is like. And that doesn't mean that he's not going to say some hard things to anybody because he also says some really hard things to people and Jesus has some hard things to say to us. But the love of God is offensive to the religious people of that day because it's around and among people and in places that you simply wouldn't expect. People who were very much unlike Jesus liked Jesus. Jesus pauses to spend time with people that most people wouldn't have. He hangs around with tax collectors this is constantly offensive. And so we need to, if you consider yourself a religious person and someone who participates uh, in a church and is pursuing the love of God with your life, sometimes you need to set yourself up to be offended by the love of God because that's what this love is like. You have these expectations about where God would be or what God would do. And sometimes Jesus is going to blow those things out of the water because God is compassionate and feeling and acting in ways that we need, but not always in ways that we would expect. I think one of the issues that I know I have is that it's easy for me to do a lot of feeling. 
It's easy for me with all the information that is flying at me constantly to think, oh, I really care about like that issue. I, I really care about this thing that I've heard about. Or I care about this thing that has come up or this ministry. Or I want to like feel this way about this thing. But as this information is flying at me all the time, I then go, squirrel, and I look over here. Because there's just information flying at us all the time. And so I think we're really good at feeling bad. But I don't know that we're really good at actually entering in. The word integrity is based on a word that means that it can stand up. Are you the same person on the inside that you are on the outside? Where's a part in your life, perhaps right now, and maybe a person comes to mind who you want to join Jonah sitting outside the city and be like, the love of God does not go there. Who's somebody or a group of people who you were called to enter in? And maybe you, you felt like, oh, yeah, God's tugging me in that way, but I don't want to. Where's a place in your life where you're stuck between feeling and action? Where you're stuck between compassion and doing something about it? Can you please do something about it? Because that's what our God is like. And that's who we're called to be. And I don't want you to spend the rest of your life just feeling really bad about some stuff for a few seconds here and there. Because that's not who you're called to be. And that doesn't mean that you can do this kind of thing with everything that you feel bad about. Of course you can't, because there's a lot of stuff that is, is sad in our world, and sometimes it's overwhelming. But can you choose to say, I'm going to enter into this situation and make as much difference as I possibly can until perhaps I'm not able to do that anymore. And I'm going to be by that person. I'm going to choose to dedicate, to, to walk with somebody that perhaps I don't even share the, the same beliefs, but I'm going to choose to enter in and choose to be with that person. Because this is what our God is like. And it causes us sometimes to break down walls that we wouldn't expect. And then we see, oh, God's there. Because this is what our God is like? Where is a place in your life where you're stuck between compassion and action? Where you need to show somebody or a group of people the love of God? Author Henry Nouwen says this this way, perhaps the most radical statement that Jesus ever said is be compassionate as your father is compassionate. Just hold that thought for one second. Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. Perhaps that's the most radical statement Jesus ever said. If you've joined us for our Mark study on Wednesday night, which I'd recommend checking out on YouTube, you can watch the episode that we just shot. But we talked about a place where Jesus says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Which, if any of us like really fully live that out, we would not have many limbs for very long. But Jesus says a lot of radical statements. But I, I think now it might be right. This is an unbelievable statement. That Jesus says, be compassionate in the same way that your father is. That it's not just this love that's an idea that, oh, you know, my heart's tugged for a few seconds, but then I'm moving on to something else. It's choosing to act on those feelings and saying, I'm going to enter in. Sometimes, even when this hurts, I'm going to choose to be sacrificial in my love because this is what my God is like. 
The quote continues and, and says this, God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive my sins, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing to me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sins as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. Such sentimental romanticism is simply not the message of the Gospels. I'm the son of my compassionate father. I'm going to be in, if I'm going to be in my father's house, I become more and more like God. What if that could be the goal of our lives? To try and become more and more like God, where the things that we feel becomes the things that we do. That we show the compassionate grace that God shows the world? What would it look like for you to imitate the love of God and actually do stuff about it? Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is out of control. Sometimes we can say, like, oh, we want to be like the New Testament church. Corinth is not the example that we want to follow because Corinth is wild. Paul talks about how when they gather, they're having these love feasts and people are getting drunk, which is like, whoa, that's a little bit crazy. I can't believe that's actually happening. And he basically describes this scene that is full of pandemonium. Everything is going on and he's calling them to have a little bit more order in how they do things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says this, what then shall we say? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And this is describing a church and again, it's a little bit out of control. Like somebody brings a, a passage and someone brings a hymn and Paul is trying to encourage this church to be more orderly. And I think today's church is completely flipped the other way. That there often is so much order that it's too much of a passive experience for people who are participating. I hope that you recognize during this season, as it's really difficult for us to have interruptions in all forms of life, I hope that one thing you've realized, if you're regular, regularly participating in our church or a church somewhere, just how much that matters and how much you miss it. And I hope you never forget that because it does matter that you're here. It does matter that you're showing up. It does matter that you're coming together. And what Paul reminds them of is something that I think we need to hear, that what you are doing, it needs to be encouraging to people. As you are showing up, are you thinking, okay, I just I want to try to encourage somebody today. What if we all collectively could do that? Because this is what our God is like. And there may be somebody who, who needs a word from me that will change their life. But I need to be there. I need to be attentive. I need to understand that my participation, it matters, and it could be an encouragement. It could be something that changes the direction of somebody's life. And I know there are some Sundays where it's been a really hard week, and perhaps all you can do is show up. But if that's true, wouldn't it be awesome if all the rest of everybody was looking for you that day? Looking to encourage, to say a word of hope. And of course, that doesn't mean that we can't be doing that right now. I was blessed. I was talking with a couple members of our church, and they had lost somebody 
during COVID that was meaningful to them. And they said one of the first, the first letter that they got was um, from someone in our church. And each of these two people had written really nice notes. I don't want to like make them feel too great. So I'm not going to mention their names, but like this is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. We're called to encourage each other. We're called to see when someone is on the prayer list to reach out to them, to write them a note, to see them at church. Eventually when we get back together, this is who we're called to be. And Paul says, when you're gathering, could that be your motivation? I'm not going to come and be like, oh, well, is the sermon going to be boring today? Spoiler alert, it always is. <laughs> or are they going to sing the songs that I want to sing? I mean, if not, I'm just going to stand here and not look all that encouraged. I'm just going to get out of here as soon as things are over. This is not who we're called to be. And again, I hope during this season, something that you've learned is just how much you're showing up matters. And if when we do get fully back together, if we could just have this attitude, this is who our God is, so this is what I'm called to be. I'm not going to be somebody who's just doing my own thing in the corner. I'm going to try my best to think about who can I encourage today? Because in reality, church today for most people can be a very passive experience. But Paul is, is saying, you guys have gone a little bit too much in Corinth. You're, you're drinking a little too much and having too much party. This is just a wild thing. You need a little bit more order. And I think Paul would say to us, you need a little more Holy Spirit. You guys need a little bit more encouragement and love. You need to recognize that you can come with the scripture, even if you're not assigned to read it on Sunday morning, you can come with the scripture memorized and say it to some people. And it's going to make a difference. And what you're doing is you're showing each other what God is like. This is who we are called to be as the church. I grew up in a, a church format that was very much about an angry God, I feel, that we had these list of things that were okay for us to do, and if we got a little bit off that road, we'd be in the dangers of hell. Like if you, you know, had somebody show up with, with something and like somebody talked who wasn't supposed to, like it was just that was the way it was. And so I think that still I'm recovering from that view of God. And it's a battle in myself because that was what I was taught. And I wonder deep down at times if I still believe that God is an angry being in the sky. And scripture comes again. The most quoted verse of the Bible by the Bible says, God is compassionate. God feels about you as a mother feels about a child. And then God does something about it. The theologian A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Because deep down, if you believe that God is angry or upset, or there's this list of things that keep you on one side or the other, you don't really understand. Because you're going to end up like Jonah, sitting outside of a city, Upset because God's love is offensive and it breaks down walls. May we recognize that we are called to be like this God. That as we think about Christian love, we can't just leave it as a feeling. It calls us to do something about it in the world. This is who our God is. 
is. And may we choose to love in that way. To show that love is not just a good feeling, but it's a rugged commitment to each other. And perhaps Jesus' most radical challenge is for us to be compassionate in that very same way. This is reminded over and over to us in this passage from Exodus, and we see Jesus doing it with skin on, where people are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. The love of God is not supposed to be here. But this is what our God is like. And praise God because we all need it individually. And may we as a community show it to each other and show it to the world.